Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby! Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are down in Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast. There are great shows in Vegas that are here all the time that you really need to see. One of the very, very best is the Bronx Wanderers. If you remember that music, the 50s, early 60s, you love it. If you don't know it, like I've told my daughter but I started listening it's great it's great stuff it's not stuff that is overplayed or anything it's just a fantastic show put on by our guest today Vinny Adonolfi now is that the right pronunciation that's right. very good Steve yeah, that's Italians, great Italians we gotta stick together <laughs> but we'll, we'll call him you know Vinny of the Bronx Wanderers <laughs> Uh, he's got a great history that we're going to talk about, too. And he works with his kids, which I think is fantastic. The show is wonderful. But before we even get into the show, how did you get into that? I mean, I understand you were working in the back end of the of the music business. I wanted to be a star from, you know, coming out of the, the neighborhood I came out of in the Bronx. It was one of those things where you had like three options. You could either become a construction worker or you could go into the mafia, but most of the mafia guys in it were either blown up or like found in trunks somewhere. So their retirement package really wasn't that attractive. Yeah, or, natural or, causes or, of 31. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Dion, you know, Dion came out of our neighborhood, and it was one of those things, and, and Danny Aiello came out of our neighborhood. So it was one of those things where you got to see those guys walk down the street, and it was like, I want to be that. Right. When I grow up, I want to be that. So I always wanted to be uh, you know, in the music business as a star, and when I had gone down, Dion got me an audition to go down and talk to the guys at Columbia Records. Uh, it was Terry Cashman and Tommy West who had a label under the uh, Columbia umbrella. And they convinced me right away, nah, kid, you don't want that. You don't get, you're going to be out at night. You're going to be on the road. You, what you really want is work in the office with us, make a good living. You'll be home at night with your family, be home on the weekends. And, and I figured, you know what, this is a good kind of sneaky way to get in the business. Yeah. And I'll make it from the inside out. So I started working for them. And the next thing you know, it's just like I caught up in the whole thing where I worked my way up from a tape copyist to vice president uh, A&R of the label. And it just became a really kind of great job where I was like Simon Cowell, you know, going out and picking talent. And yes, no, yes, you could live. No, you're going to die. And so it was really kind of a cool thing. And I enjoyed that so much. And I enjoyed helping young talent along the way. And somewhere in the middle of all that, I would constantly record demos for them, which was our job for our publishing division. And I said to them, you know, how come you can't put one of my versions out, which they had done with Tony Orlando? I pretty much had Tony Orlando's job. And so they said, no, 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 we're not going to lose you the way we lost Tony Orlando. You know, you know, you're, too, you're too valuable and we don't want that for you. We don't want that for you. So I wound up, it never happened, and I basically just wound up working for them forever. And when Sony came in to buy us out, we were all going to be out of a job. It was like, now what? And another guy that came out of our neighborhood uh, was Chaz Palminteri, the actor from A Bronx Tale. So Chaz had said to me, why don't you take the kids and start a group and do a retrospective of your career? Just do all songs by artists that you worked with, which was Billy Joel, Neil Diamond, Paul McCartney. And I said, nah. I said, Chaz, the kids are too little. 
They're 14 and 11. And he said, listen to me, it's a gimmick. And it's a great gimmick. Just do it. So he winds up getting us a job in this, uh, like, gangster nightclub. And the funny thing was, we were horrible. We were horrible. But the kids who were playing, all the guys in suits are walking up stuffing $100 bills in their pockets. <laughs> so at the end of the night, the band got paid 300 and the kids had, like, $800 each. That's great. So we all looked at each other. Chaz said, what are you, an idiot? Look at how this will work. Do it. Just do it. So the next thing you know, off we went. And, uh, and it's been just an amazing, amazing 15-year run. That culminated into, I told the kids now, based on my label experience, we're going to do things in five-year increments. The five, first five years is going to be, we've got to work as many nights as possible to get our name out. And then the next five, we're going to travel, and we're going to lose a lot of money. And then the third five, we're going to land somewhere and be somebody at that point. And so it was roughly around year 14 that we got spotted by these people down in Florida that said, would you guys like to go to Vegas? And I said, it's always been my dream to be, you know, Tom Jones, Igbert Humperdinck, Paul Anka, you know, Dean Frank, Sammy Wayne, anybody. And so we, we were lucky enough that it happened. And, you know, and here we are, and the rest is kind of history. That's fantastic. What a great story. And I mean, we're lucky, you know. It's, how is it playing with your kids? I think that has to be great to see them I, and be able was, to you know, I, the, the one story I love to always tell is, so when, when we were deciding to buy a house, I said to my wife, the richest area where we were at was this, uh, in New, northern New Jersey, was this little town called Alpine. And all the stars lived in Alpine. And I said to her, we can't afford to live in Alpine, but right at the bottom of the hill on the Alpine borderline is this other little tiny town. And the homes are really expensive there, but let's see if we can't find a wrecked, destroyed home and we'll move there. So we moved to that that neighborhood and there I am like, you know, I'd, I'd be shopping in stores. Chris Rock would come walking in. Eddie Murphy would come walking in. I mean, it was just, it really was like a really kind of cool area to, to raise the kids. And, you know, the Knicks are there, the Yankees are there and we would just see sports stars and just, you know, it was really great. So the, the, the point of having the kids with me now in the band became such a great thing because we'd gone away one night and did a road trip in Pittsburgh. And when I got back on a Monday morning, uh, the kids were teenagers at this point. There's a knock on the door. The police are at the door. Mm. And I said, well, what, what? And they said, where were the kids on the weekend? I said, come on, you guys know me. We were off playing in Pittsburgh. We were, you know, we were away. I had no problem. The cop went to walk away. I said, no, 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 wait, wait. You got to tell me what? Yeah. They said, well, there was a party over the weekend up the hill, meaning in Alpine. Mm. And one of the kids went into the mother's bedroom and stole like $50,000 worth of jewelry. So all I could think of is they were with me. How lucky is it that all the years that they were with me, they missed the drug parties. They right. missed they missed all the craziness of, you know, in a way it's like kind of robbed them of their teenage years of the crazy things. But at the same time, they were getting to hang out with people like Tony Orlando and, you know, Fred Paris and the Five Satins and, you know, just like the iconic, iconic groups. Uh, the tokens, you know, and, and they, they worked like we work with every oldies group you can imagine opening for them. So it was a really kind of cool way for them to, you know, be, yeah. be raised. Yeah. Like you said, the pros and cons of everything. But it is great because there's no better thing than to keep an eye on them. You know where they're at. Yeah. I, I, that was such a really good, good thing. The, the downside is we're never off. You know, whenever we're home, we're still talking about business. And, and it's, you know, the toughest thing I have with, you know, especially like my wife with this is that, you know, like when I get home, it's like done. 
No more, yeah. no more band stuff, no more show stuff. Let's just, let's be a normal family. Instead, we're tweaking. Well, yeah, you know, you did sure. this wrong tonight. You should have did this. You should have said this a little quicker. You should have did that. And so we're constantly tweaking. And my son is at that point now, uh, the older one, where he opened up for Bon Jovi at the uh, T-Mobile Arena. Wow. So the great thing with that is he's ready to kind of fly and take off on his own. So he's got his thought process of what he thinks works and I have my thought process of what I think works so we kind of butt heads left and right and uh, I was lucky enough early on in my career that one of the offices that we we had working in our branch was an office called Sid Walsh and Agency the Sid Walsh and Agency was was the commercial agency of like the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. every commercial you pretty much heard on on the on radio TV these guys were working on and Barry Manilow was one of the guys in the office so I had known of Barry. I, when I came in, Barry had just hit with Mandy and left. But I would see him come back periodically to get checks or talk or whatever. So I, I begged the kids, I want you to come see Barry's show in Las Vegas. And, of course, ah, Barry Manilow. Who's Barry? I'm not going to see that. So, of course, I go. And he does the whole show. And he ends the show finally saying, so you guys want to go to the Copa? And he breaks at the Copacabana, and you literally have to, like, scrape the entire audience off the ceiling <laughs> that everybody's that crazy, jumping, dancing, all that. So I come running home, and I go, I'm telling you guys, this is the move. It's about guys I work with in my career. I was lucky enough to be, you know, affiliated with things Barry was doing. Why not do Copacabana? Oh, Dad, we're never <laughs> playing that song. So we fight left and right, and uh, but I, I finally got them where... There was a job in Chicago not too long ago. And I said to them, being the mean dad that I am, I said, listen, I could do this with you or without you. I said, you know what? I'm going to go do this job without you guys. So all of a sudden, they think I'm joking. Mm-hmm. A release comes out that the big Vinny band is playing in Chicago. <laughs> and I had no idea what that was. They said, who's the big Vinny band? And somehow they're advertising in Chicago. I said... Well, I guess that's me. And they said, you're really doing it? And I said, yeah, I'm doing it. And I literally took three young kids who used to come on stage with us from 10 years ago. They were 10 and 12 years old. They're now 22 years old. So I called them by and said, how would you like to back me up? Oh, my God. This would be, what a thrill. What an honor. And I took three old guys from Vegas, and off we went. And we go, and we kill the show. And, of course, in the middle of the show, I did Copa, and it was an outdoor <laughs> festival. And the whole Everyone place goes crazy, crazy dancing. Right? <laughs> and, of course, I take that back and show the kids. So now the next time we went out and did a festival, they let me do it, and we did it. And I'm, I'm slowly trying to work that in the show here in Vegas. And, you know, but Vinny's got a lot of great ideas of his own, and, and he does, you know, he picked, he wanted to Bohemian Rhapsody, which I never really thought would play out no, well, and it worked, and it goes over great. It works. It worked great. Well, that's great. That's probably, that's our... Signature song now in our highlight of the night because again, being a record executive slash music producer, you cannot have four guys on stage do Bohemian Rhapsody, right? Which Queen can't do that. But if you take the studio on stage with you, it'll work. So essentially, the plan was there's six guys in the group. Everybody gets a vocal part. We're going to record each part, and while you record each part, double it. Wow. Triple it, yeah. quadruple it. So I made them do it five times each. And then when we play live in the showroom, we sing on top of our own voice. So when you're in the audience sitting back, you're literally hearing 20, 25 voices from six guys on stage. And it's like, 
wow, that yeah. sounds just like the record. You know, yeah, that, because that's the way you have to do that tune. Because that whole Brian May thing, I remember, you know, he's an astrophysicist. Yeah. It was really involved in it yeah. and stuff. So, so it makes sense because people probably are surprised by that, right? They don't expect what would be called a local band, which you guys aren't really, yeah. but a band like that, right. to be so sophisticated in the play. Yeah. And yet, I mean, yeah, that's we, how that works. Yeah, I mean, the great thing that, that, you know, I told the kids from day one was no matter what song you do, it's got to be in your pocket. And it's got to be something that really you sound like. And when people close their eyes, you know, it's going to work. So the show became this so psychological kind of thing where I had gone into the bosses at Columbia. And I pitched the idea for them at this point. Oh, my gosh, like 20 years ago. That we're going to get all the oldies groups of all time. And we're going to do a live special from Madison Square Garden. And we're going to record them, and we're going to show how, look, there's the five satin singing the still of the night. There's the token singing the lion sleeps tonight. There's uh, Jimmy Beaumont, since I don't have you, the Skyliners. And we're going to show, look how, look how we all got old together. They're all, but we're all still here, really happy. So their answer to me was, I don't know. We got to go to, we got to market test it. We got to get some focus groups. I, I said, no, 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 listen to me. I already got the groups lined up. I, the, the big, big promoter at that point, the guy that really started the rock and roll revival thing was this guy named Richard Nader. And I had Richard ready. I said, Richard, you know, let's do this. And it'll be Richard Nader Presents. So you'll get all the credit. The garden turned around and they, the, with the union cost, it got so out of hand that the Tropicana in Atlantic City stepped in and said, okay, as long as you say recorded live at the Tropicana Atlantic City, yeah. we'll give you the room. So here I am telling them, I, I got the room for free. I got the whole thing. I got the acts are going to do it for free. And we're going to go in and we're, we're going to record this one no night. No right? I mean, let's put this out. No, we're not going to do it. So about two years goes by. And three, and the guy T.J. Lubinsky comes yep. out and does the Channel 13 doo-wop special. And the next thing you know, it's the biggest special in their history. Yeah. To which I ran into the office going, thank you. Yeah, I okay. gave that to you three years ago, but you guys didn't want to do that. And they raised millions so, off of that. Yeah. And, they, and now they do every type of genre of music. Yeah. He goes out but it all that. started in that. And so now wow. I thought, when it came point for the Bronx Wanderers, my whole sales pitch was... We all grew up together. We all got old together. Yeah. I said, how's about I get five young kids and we go on stage. And now when we're doing the wand or run around Sue or, you know, like a Dion tune and some 60 to 75 year old person is watching the show, they basically are seeing a bunch of kids do it. They're now back at their high school dance. Right. So and they feel rejuvenated. And so essentially it turned into this whole well, let me let everybody become a kid again. And so when I show, for instance, I'm telling my story in the show, when I'm showing you home movies of my Super 8 millimeter with the old Christmas tree and, you know, in the neighborhood and the people, and shit, you're not watching my home movies. In your own mind, you're closing your eyes saying, my I neighbor, that. that was my neighborhood. And I look at it, and that was my Christmas tree. And that was, and so all of a sudden, everybody's back in their childhood. And so all I get on the meeting read lines is you took me back. You took me back. Right. And it's like, yeah, that was that was the goal. You're sort of doing what Frankie Valley does, where he goes out in the new Four Seasons, right. which are basically young kids. Yeah. But I think yours is kind of extra special, but for a couple of reasons. Number one, I love Frankie Valley. You know, the play on him was fantastic, yeah. and so forth. But your music is great, and it's stuff that people 
wow, I forgot about that. Right. You know, and then they have your well, family. The, the, the great, I mean, the, the cool thing with this, the story is, you know, the story starts with I came out of the neighborhood that Dion came out of. So we'll do a Dion tune. And then it was the next thing you know, I'm working at Columbia Records. And who did I get to work with? Neil Diamond and Billy Joel. So we'll do a Neil Diamond tune. You know, we'll do Sweet Caroline. And then we'll do a Billy Joel tune. And then, I'm, you know, as I'm you know, going into the whole story of everything, you know, I tell about how I still had my dream that I wanted to be a player. So on weekends, I would go out and play in bands. And when I was out on the weekends playing in bands, I played with bands like the Stray Cats. And the kids wow. are big fans of Brian Setzer. Oh, yeah. And the next thing you know, they're doing Rock This Town. And so, you know, then we talk about how, uh, you know, the 60s, we had, a, we had a vet come down and ask me to do a couple of tunes. So it's not just, you know, an oldies thing. And then it works up to where yeah. I say the kids kind of bullied me into where they want to do Bohemian Rhapsody. And we do that. And everybody says, where, where did that come from? And then I say, you know, people ask me, how do I get these kids, you know, to do all this old music? And then we play the theme from The Godfather as I'm looking up at the <laughs> ceiling. And so, and so, but it works out. I said, no, once a night, I let them do something from their generation. And then they do Uptown Funk by Bruno Mars. So we really kind of hit the whole spectrum of music from, you know, 50s, 60s up to today. And then at one point I sit on a stool and say, it was always my dream to be here in Las Vegas. And uh, we do the song, If I Could Dream, you know. And the cool thing is I do it as a duet with Elvis on screen and a choir. And, uh, and then we just kind of like just bring it on home where I tell the story, which really was, was a fun story. We would play this one restaurant every Friday night in Bloomfield, New Jersey called Fratelli's. Mm-hmm. And this guy would come and sit in the front and stare at us. And I said, who's this guy? And I said, the manager, who's this guy? And he said, you don't know? And I go, no, because that's Tommy DeVito from the Four Seasons. So Tommy says to me, come here, kid, sit down. He said, they're doing a play about us. It's going to come out a year from now. It's not even out yet. I want you guys to do it here. It's going to be the biggest thing in the business. So before you know it, I never would have considered, you know, Bronx guys doing right. Four Seasons music. And so here we are. He's got us dancing, and we're doing sherry with him. We're wearing suit jackets. And, and the kids were so cute because they were small that it became such a great novelty of us doing the Four Seasons yeah. That four months later, we got to go halfway around the world and fill in for Frankie Valley over in Abu Dhabi. (laughs) And when word kind of got out that these are the guys that are out there, you know, before the jersey was hits, and these is like the go-to jersey band, all of a sudden the play comes out and hits. And the music business being what it is, whatever is a success, every age it needs. (laughs) So now all of a sudden we were in incredible demand at that point. And so we just, we hit at that same point that the play hit and the rest is history. But it, it really, I, you know, I say it all goes back to that one day of Sony coming in saying that, you know, we're buying you guys out. You're out of a job. And it's, what am I going to do? And Chaz Palminteri telling me, take the kids and start a group. And I said, they're too young, man. What a great work. idea. And what a wonderful turn. I mean, to have this great career and then suddenly to turn into a similar but yeah. different career. Yeah. Well, well, you're blessed. That's really a good you, deal. Every <laughs> night I look up and, you know, and I tell the kids all the time. That's why on a meet and greet line, I'll be there for an hour past when the kids are already home. You know, just thanking everybody because I know. And I know how fragile it is where, where the kids don't get that. You know, tomorrow morning, Caesars can come in and say, listen, we've been bought out. Yeah. And you're, you're out. We're out. And we're in the street tomorrow morning. So it's, it's that fragile of a line. So I tell the kids, you've got to appreciate this. More from Vinny Adnolfi, founder of the Bronx Wanderers, in just a moment. But first... 
when you visit Las Vegas, you're always looking for fun things to do. And I think one thing you got to put on your list is the Neon Museum. It's fantastic. What a way to learn the history of Las Vegas. But by the signs that go back all the way to the 1930s. The lobby, in fact, is a restored shell from the old La Concha Motel. It's a lot of fun. The staff there is incredible. Really unique Las Vegas experience. So you can learn the history and have a blast. Go to neonmuseum.org. That's neonmuseum.org. You are listening to Vinny Agnolfi, founder of the Bronx Wanderers, who play nightly at Harris Vegas. Yeah, and of course you appreciated it from the start because you had to tell people, like you used the Simon Cowell uh, analogy yeah. earlier. Yeah. yeah, you had to be uh, right on there, and you know how difficult it is because for every uh, Neil Diamond and Billy yeah. Joel, there's lots of people that yeah. just weren't quite as good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the saddest. There's nothing you know sadder than somebody really coming in with it with a demo and they really really love it and they want to make it. And you're listening, and you know, you just know it's not good, and you you now need to break this person's heart. Yeah. And I mean, that, that to me was the worst part of what I had to do. And I mean, the only thing that I would, I thought I was different than anybody else is instead of just being kind of like pass, you know, being horrible. I mean, and I think Simon does it more for TV, yeah, where you know you're absolutely horrible, and you, you know you would you wouldn't do that. I mean, yeah. you basically say, listen, it needs work. Go back home, work on it, see if you can come up with something better. You need a commercial hit and just, you know, be more encouraging and send people home. And I think I encouraged so many acts through the years that people always wrote me and say, you know, you were the nicest rejection I ever got. Yeah. And it's and that's what you kind of want, you know, but but it, but it's it's that's why I tell the kids it's tough, you know. And and the one thing I it constantly the greatest thing I think that happened to the kids was us getting to work with Wayne Newton here. We were here for the first two years, and Wayne was the show after us. And, I mean, if I tell you the highlight of my career was those five minutes after my show of walking in the hallway, bumping into Wayne, just that five-minute interaction with him was, like, I, unbelievable. You know, hey, Wayne, oh, my God, it's Wayne Newton. And, you know, getting to talk to him. And, but his persona of how was it? I said, I don't know. I, I really thought I kind of blew this line tonight, or I should have said it this way or that way. And he said, yeah, you know, try it like this. Try it. And he would constantly tell me things and, and just give me that thing where I would look at him and go, you know, my, you're Wayne Newton. And, it, and it's like, <laughs> wow. it's, you're, it's never good enough. And Wayne would tell me, I'm never good enough. And I go, no, no, you're, you're, you're Mr. Las Vegas. And, you know, he goes, Vin, I could always be better. And, I, and he would show the kids all the time, you know, don't ever think you're good. You could always be better. And it's always to, to give the audience a better time, a better experience. And, you know, and getting to work with him up close and personal was really, yeah. And people don't realize, you know, they see it now. And there's been jokes and so forth. This guy owned this town for so oh, long. The guy. I'm in, the, I'm in the middle of begging, begging. And if anybody from Caesars is listening to me, I'm continuing my beg. 60 years he celebrated this year as an anniversary. When Frank, Dean, and Sammy's careers were ending, uh, NBC did TV specials on them. And they did it from a showroom in Vegas. And they had all the stars of the time come up on stage and do one song by them and say some kind words about them and then walk off the stage. And I, I went to the Caesars bosses and I said, I'm begging you, 
Give him the Coliseum for one night. Put him back on top for one night. And for 24 hours, every LED sign in the city should just say, celebrating 60 years, happy anniversary, thank you, Mr. Las Vegas. And just leave it up there. The same way when somebody passes away, they leave everything, you know, uh, one sign for 24 hours. Give Wayne the 24-hour sign. Get the mayor. Get the governor. Get every star in town to come over and say, hey, thank you. You know, let Chris Angel is friendly with him. Let him come over and say something. And let, you know, Gwen Stefani or Jennifer Lopez or Brooke, Brooks and Don and, you know, Reba. Let everybody come out and really thank you, man. 60 years is a major accomplishment. And at the same time, you know, it'll be the hottest ticket in town, so they'll make money. And they could televise it and sell it as a TV special, and they'll make money. And they could invite all their high rollers in to say, don't you want to be at the event of all time for this year at Caesars? You know, it'll make money for them. You know, but I would love to pay Absolutely. back and give Wayne just that one day. And it could be that one thing where people kind of remember, you know, there, there comes a point where people forget about that. You remember how big he was and how really, how many years and so forth, it might yeah. become an in thing. To, I mean, I saw the reaction people had to him when he ran the siren at the uh, Golden yeah. Knights game. You know, and that's real love for the guy. You know, he's they, been around a long time. Right. and uh, it's You know, when, when, you hear, when you hear the history of somebody like that, it, it just, it just it, it's, you know, when people say my, my show is inspirational because I get to say, here I am, I lost my job, and what am I going to do? And I go to my old neighborhood, I'm walking around the streets, and I go, my God, I, you know, I'm... I'm almost 50 years old, you know, I'm 45 years old, I'm out of a job, what am I going to do? And uh, Chaz says, start the group, and I start the group, and it works. You know, you hear Wayne's story. Wayne was playing downtown six sets a night, six 45-minute sets a night. And he says, I learned to play all the instruments because there's no way you could sing six sets a night. You can't. Right. I mean, you, you physically can't. And he was doing it six nights a week. And... Uh, and I, and I always say to him, you say six nights a week because God rested on the seventh day, Wayne. <laughs> and you are God. And so, but, but you know, he, he put his time in. And when, when it was his opportunity, he went to Harris and said, hey, you know, I want to be a main room act. And they said, you'll never be a main room act. And they literally threw him out. And there he is. He went back on the road. And luckily, Jack Benny sees him playing and says, Wayne, I want you to open for me in the main room. Yeah. And he goes, where? In, in Harris. And, he, and he's such a, he said, Mr. Benny, I can't do that because, uh, you know, they threw me out and they don't want me. And Jack Benny got behind him and said, if they don't want you, they don't want me. Wow. And the rest is history. But again, the dues he paid to get to where he got, you know, yeah. people think of the suave guy with the, you know, just Mr. Las Vegas, the whole thing. So many years of struggle and, and, and work went into make that guy. And patience is such a big deal. I'm listening to you. I'm realizing that. And I'm thinking even like you said, Billy Joel, for example. Yeah. Well, Billy Joel didn't become an instant star. He had a number of we albums. on Billy Joel. Really? I mean, we were, I, I was, <laughs> I was, that's the story I was telling the show is I was in the audition where we passed on him. He basically is a Columbia artist at this point. Columbia wants to put him with younger producers. And so I had just started working with them and Cashman and West are going downstairs to audition him. So Terry and Tommy said to me, come along, watch, see what we do. Don't talk, just watch. So we go downstairs, and Billy's like playing a tune, and he stops. And he shuffles papers around, he plays another tune, and he stops. And he's moving stuff around, and he just... And the audition goes through, and we walk out, and he was great. 
And they said to me in the hallway, you know, I said, oh, my God, the guy was great. The guy was great. And their answer was they said, yes, he's going to be great. He's, he's, everything is there. But right now we're just so busy with uh, Jim Croce had died a few years earlier. Uh, they're, they're still wrapped up in, in, you know, trying to form their own label to put all the Croce stuff out. And they said it's just going to be too much of a headache you know, right now to wow. take on a new guy and they pass on. Him. <laughs> and, and I'm going to say within a year, I'm at, uh, I'm at one of the studio sessions where they're working on The Stranger and scenes from an Italian restaurant is being laid down. And I went back there and I said, man, did you guys make a big mistake? Yeah. <laughs> it's the truth. And, but again, you know, when, when you're so successful like they were, and it's not about money because they have all the money that they need. Right. You know what does it matter? Yeah, make so they're like, well, so, we'll, we'll, we'll get somebody else. You know, and so it didn't. It didn't mean anything to, to say. To me, when I yelled yeah. at them, I go, "To me, it means that because I could have retired if you guys had signed them." <laughs> <laughs> well, you saw some incredible talent there. I mean, you mentioned Neil Diamond. What an interesting guy! Because I always try to figure what genre he belongs in. Yeah, and it's hard to do. <laughs> he was, you know, we that whole kind of period was singer songwriter. Sang. And Neil was a singer-songwriter, Billy was a singer-songwriter, James Taylor, all those guys were just, you know, great, great folk rock kind of things. And Neil was just, you never really kind of knew. He'd put a great pop record out, and then all of a sudden he'd write this great introspective, you know, I am, I said, or something, and we just go, wow, you know, or Solitary Man, and just, just a great, great performer. Um, but you never could, I mean, my, probably my big thrill was Paul McCartney was when Paul signed with us, we got to do five albums with him. And I begged them. I said, oh, please, can I, can I, no. Can I please, and no. So the answer was, I never got, but we'll tell you what, we just flew over from Abbey Road Studios, the actual A-track machine that they uh, recorded Sgt. Pepper on. We'll let you look at it and you could touch it. <laughs> so I put my hands on it and that was it. He was in like another room and it's like, no, nobody could go in and talk to him. Wow. But it was cool. So but that was cool. Close to greatness. That was pretty cool. <laughs> well, the, the, those are the Wings days, right? He did, uh, with us, he did McCartney 2 as a solo album. Then he did Back to the Egg as Wings. Man. Then he did, uh, they were pretty much McCartney solo albums where he did Tug of War. Yeah. He did Pipes of Peace. And uh, give my regards to Broad Street. So he had just gone through the Wings period and then came out with this, uh, where it was all kind of him alone, him with Linda. And, uh, but, and there were some, really some really good tunes in that period. And just, you know, you what know, well, you mentioned before, like the Billy Joel with The Stranger, which was an incredible album. I miss the albums, personally. Yeah. The albums. What were some of the two or three top albums that you worked on that you thought, wow, and you knew right away this is going to be different? Uh, Springsteen's born in the USA. I mean, we just, you know, you kind of knew that that was just going to like, he was already at the top. We had, a, we had a thing at Columbia where no matter what goes on, everything comes off the table if Bruce puts a new release out. So, uh, Meatloaf's uh, Bad Out of Hell. What a great album. You know, was, was on Epic. That was on our side. And when that came out, we all kind of knew this was going to explode and go crazy. Are you surprised he didn't uh, go anywhere from that? Because that yeah. album, it was one of those, probably like the Boston album. Yeah. They'd come out, and it was so good, 
it's just kind of hard to yeah. follow it up. Yeah. <laughs> but again, they make so much money from it, and you know, they're so kind of burnt out. For it. It's you know like when you make Gone with the Wind, what's your follow up picture? <laughs> you know, it's so hard to follow. You you then start chasing that to try and top it, and which they all kind of do, and it, and it's always a tough kind of thing that that you don't want to say that was your pinnacle, but. You know, that kind of was your pinnacle. So, I mean, Bad Out of Hell was, was incredible. Uh, I mean, when Michael came out with Off the Wall. Yeah, yeah. We kind of all said, and this was before Thriller, but we all kind of said to each other, you know, this is just changing everything. Because at that point now, his dance music became the club scene, and it was like, wow, everything's going to be different from here on in. And then it just, when it turned into Thriller and exploded, it was just no looking back. It's incredible. You know, I'm just thinking about, you talk about how hard it is to follow a great album. Billy Joel's, though, it was kind of interesting. When he followed The Stranger, he got, I forget the name of the album. Yeah, you remember that? And then he tried to change that. And then there was one after that was very much like the music you do. I mean, right? uh, He did this to salute to uh, Longest Time. Right. And uh, Uptown Girl was a tribute to the Four Seasons. And yeah. I mean, they, they all kind of, you know, because it's like, where do you go? And, you know, Paul at one point was fooling around with, John had done a uh, greatest hits of just nothing but all these covers. And, you know, you go, okay, but where, where's John? You know, where, where, where's you? Yeah. You know, but that's, that's what they do. I mean, it's, but they, they sustain. There's a reason why these guys are the icons that they are. They deserve it. They are the greatest writers, greatest performers, greatest players. I mean, Billy Joel, we walked out of that audition, and Tommy West is an accomplished, accomplished musician. He looked at me and said, that is the quickest left hand I ever saw in my life. And I mean, and that's, that's the way he plays. I mean, it's just, these guys are great. I mean, Elton John, God. I mean, these guys are all music gods. I, t- I tell the kids, there's those 10 or 20 guys at the top. That, that's a, just a whole different stratosphere. You can't, you know. There's a reason why they're there. You, know, you mentioned Brian Setzer before. Yeah. What do you think about a guy that played with the Stray Cats and then could take that and all of a sudden go with an orchestra thing, and yeah. play big band? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's all about entertaining. And when you think about what he does on a stage, he comes off that stage, did I give them their money's worth? Yeah. Did I entertain them? Yeah, I did. And to reinvent yourself... With the big band thing, it's now, he's got three careers going. He's got Brian Setzer, he's got Stray Cats, which he's now just did a, a new album with them. And then he's got the Christmas show, which will probably be out in a month or so, Fantastic. that he'll go out with the big band. That's probably the best Christmas show out there. So as your son tries to take it to the next level, yeah. are you trying to work on kind of going where that's going to go, you know, in terms of my, songwriting? My sad, yeah, my sad point for him would be, uh, is just I wish I had... The contacts I had years ago, but everybody that I knew that was anybody, they've all retired now. And it's, it's a different music business now. So it's a tougher road for him now because now with YouTube and Facebook and there was no music business anymore. You know, when I was growing up, there was like two or three radio stations. You'd go to hear that to see what the top records were. You'd go to Billboard. This is the top 100. And you'd go to the local record store and there'd be a record band and these are the top 100 singles. And you'd buy them. And now it's like some guy just in his home records a song. Boom, there's a million hits on the internet. And somebody throws something out. Boom, million hits. I mean, I I personally, you know, I'm not a big fan of uh, the American Idol machine thing because I think it kind of hurts the kids in the long run. You know, you take them to the top of the mountain 
without having paid their dues and without the grind and, and knowing how to get from here to here. You just thrust them on top of the mountain. They're now the biggest stars on the planet for, for 15 minutes of whatever the season is. And then at the end of the season, you take them on the road and then you throw them to the side. Yeah. And where are they? You know, and if you look at all the years later of American Idol, I mean, you've got Kelly Clarkson, you've got uh, Carrie Underwood. You know, you've got your four or five people that have really broken through, that have sustained and been amazing. But, but what about the hundred other kids that you like who are on drugs now or who are just destroyed now because they could never get back to that top of the mountain again because you gave them that illusion, you know, for your, for your 10 minutes of... You know, it it's was like all about the ratings. Sword now, right? Because on the one hand, you can get your music out where before, you know, you could you yeah. could hit a door in your face. Now you can get it out. Right. But on the other hand, so can everybody else. And right. it's hard to separate yourself. Yeah. I mean, I would love, I mean, more than anything, I would be absolutely thrilled to be the Vegas act in town, the father of the Jonas Brothers. You know, I would, right. I would love Vinny and, and Nikki to be out in a real hit, young, hip, young act and doing what they do. And I, but I try and explain to them all the time. I said, you know, as, as much as you're reaching for that holy grail and that brass ring and everything that you're chasing and running after, realize what, what's the top prize of America's Got Talent? A residency on the Las Vegas Strip. Right, you know, so right. what do you guys do for a living? You have a residency on the Las Vegas Strip. So you're, you're there. You know, the, you're, you're already in your career, which is a great career. You know, take advantage of it. Be great at what you do. Make the people really happy. And, you know, our, our big disappointment comeback uh, that we have a problem with is we didn't have the hit record. I mean, when people say, "Who to you, who's the greatest magician in Las Vegas? My answer is me. <laughs> I am. Because I took five kids that had no hit record no experience, nothing, and got them to where they're headlining on the Las Vegas Strip. I mean, all done with mirrors and studio guys in the beginning and whatever I had to do to make this thing work and, and one-nighters, a million one-nighters along the way, and here we are. And I say to the kids, so we never had the TV shot. You know, when you go, Matt Frank was a brilliant magician who we work in the same room as him. You know, Matt won America's Got Talent, and he'll have 600 people every night in the room because he was in front of a mil millions of people. Right. Whereas we'll play to 200 people and 20 of them would say, I never heard of you guys. Oh my, this is a great show, but I never heard of you guys. And it's like, you know, we, we just have to work twice as hard as everybody else. Well, it is a great show. And I think a lot of that goes to the fact that what you did for a living, you get it. Because like, I got to entertain somebody. And that's why yeah. it's been able to last as well as it has. And people talk about it all the time. Because right. I imagine these shows around here, sometimes they come and go, you know, or it has a little season. That's it. Yeah. I talk to people that say, I want to see the Bronx Wanderers again and again. Yeah. I... I I have the toughest time understanding that. I, I get it. I, I'm assuming from what we talked about earlier, the whole taking you back to your youth and seeing the home movies and seeing, and you're seeing your own home movies. So people wanted that, that young feeling of, of whatever they experience in their own mind when they see us. But believe me when I tell you I'm on that stage night after night and I go, I don't get it. As much as I'm the guy doing it, I don't get it because I want... 
you know, and I fight with the producers all the time, but it's money and we don't have the money. We're not a big budget show. You know, when I go see a show like Siegfried and Roy or when I, when I go see, you know, a Cirque show, right. you know, Beatles Love. Oh, there's a hundred dancers, there's lights everywhere, lasers going crazy, flash pots, you know, shooting in the air. I'm like, this to me, that's Las Vegas. With our show, you got six guys, you got five kids on stage and an old guy in the middle. And I go, okay, <laughs> what? Where is it? Where's the girls? Where's the, where's the flash? Where's the, you know, you know, poof, give me something exploding once. They nothing. Nothing. I oh, you got the best show. I'm coming to your show again. I'm like, why? Why? <laughs> go go down the block. I'm telling you. Go see the Beatles. It's, that's a great show, you know. Any of those other shows, the, the people are so talented. I mean, No, it, it is, but I think there's something about the music you play and the yeah. way it just makes you feel, you know. Yeah. People like that. And maybe they're not going to make the trip just to see the Bronx Wanderers, but that's going to be on their list. And I yeah. think it's well worth it. Ticketmaster, Vegas.com, any one of those great and sites. And you've got a website, too. TheBronxWanderers.com. That's an easy one. I'm telling you, folks, you're going to love this. This is a show you don't want to miss. Thank Vinny, you, thanks Steve. So Steve, much, thank man. you so much for having me. Appreciate this is it. awesome. Thank you. You've been listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast with new shows loaded twice weekly. Got a guest idea? Email us at info at VegasNeverSleeps.com and catch the show live every Sunday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, coast to coast on the Biz Talk Radio Network.